Isaiah chapter number 2, and we're going to begin here in verse number 1. The Bible says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. I want to speak on that thought this morning. Come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Father, thank you for the time again together this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. If there's anyone here that's uncertain about whether or not they'll spend eternity with you in heaven, or apart from you in the lake of fire and hell. Lord, I pray that you would make it clear to them this morning uh, where their destination would be and also make it clear to them that if their destination is not heaven, that you've done everything necessary to make it happen. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of our sin. I pray that you would give us a clear and open hearts and minds to receive your word this morning. I pray that you give direction even as I speak, Lord, to to say only that which is necessary and directed by you. Lord, I pray that it would prepare us uh, for what you have for us today and what's coming in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the book of Isaiah is, is interesting. It's, it's prophetic. Uh, it is one of the larger books of prophecy in the Old Testament, if not the largest. It is a microcosm of the Bible. The Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Uh, the Old Testament is 39 chapters. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal much with God's judgment and God's rebuke of his people. Uh, and then the final 27 chapters uh, are about healing and restoration, much as the Lord Jesus comes and is presented in the 27 books of the New Testament to give us uh, about, uh, about the coming Christ and our healing. Isaiah chapter 1 wastes no time getting to the point. Uh, whenever Isaiah begins to write, whenever he begins to come forth and to lay out here uh, what the message is that he has from God, he identifies himself uh, and then uh, by, by the, the second or third verse, he is laying down the law. I mean, he is just coming at them hard and fast. And we're going to look at that here uh, as we get started this morning because he opens his writing rebuking Judah and not just lightly rebuking them, but rebuking them strongly. Uh, and so when we look at this and see in verses one or verses three and four, notice what he says. He says, the ox knoweth his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, and they are gone away backward. So you stop and you consider what he's saying here. God is opening the gate. Isaiah is right off the bat. Now, imagine in just a couple of weeks, we'll have this revival meeting and uh, Pastor Navarrete from Rhode Island, Greater Rhode Island Baptist Church will come and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night he'll preach and he's never been to our church. He's never preached to us as a congregation before. And, uh, and so when he gets here, I would anticipate uh, that the first time, the first night, he's going to take a few minutes whenever he first gets up here to kind of feel you out. And for you to feel him out and try to uh, just kind of let you know a little bit maybe about what he's about. And I'm not going to tell him he has to do that. If he comes up here and just opens the word and starts firing away and that's what God's directed him to do, then that's fine. Uh, but most of the time, uh, in November, I'm going to be gone a Sunday to preach for a friend up in the St. Louis area before Veterans Day. And uh, he used to work on my church staff in, in Arkansas. And uh, it's been many years since I preached to his church. I would expect that it's a very different congregation. And uh, 
uh, I, I'm, when I go up there on that Sunday morning or during the Sunday school hour, I'll take a little time because I've not spoken to them before and there won't be that many people. There'll be a few people there that I know, but not many uh, that I want to kind of get a pulse beat of what uh, the people are like and where they are and how they feel and uh, what God's doing in their life or not. And before I uh, bring the message that God's given me and try to just kind of get a little momentum, Isaiah bursts onto the scene not trying to make any friends. Now, if you go somewhere and you speak, Pastor Navarrete comes here and speaks, he's, he's going to want to make some friendships. He's going to want to build some relationships. He's going to want to make some investments in uh, the lives of people whenever they come. That's not Isaiah's approach here. I'm not saying that the other approach is wrong or bad or that this one is preferred. I'm just saying that this is what God directed him to do and he's obedient to it, but he, he comes out with guns blazing. I mean, he is, he is putting it out there. So, Pastor, what do you mean? Well, in verse 3, he charges that the ox knows his owner, but God's people don't know their God. He looks at them and he says, hey, wait a minute. He says, listen, Israel, listen, Judah. The ox and the donkey know who their master is. And you don't know who your God is. And he's not trying to make any friends here. He's just laying it out. In verse 4, he calls them sinful, evildoers, corruptors that have forsaken God, provoking his anger. You stop and you think about it. If somebody came here, uh, and if I came up here and just opened up and, uh, and came out and got my long pointy fingers out and started drawing down on Kyle and Miss Patty and Pedro and Brother Lynn uh, and just started railing on, uh, you're sinful. Uh, Miss Patty is an evildoer. Uh, Kyle, is, uh, Kyle is a corrupter. Uh, and Pedro's forsaken God. Uh, and uh, and Miss Leela is provoking his anger. Uh, and I just kind of go down the list of, uh, of, of laying these things out here. Most of the congregation is going to step back and say, Pastor's lost his mind. No one's ever going to come back again. No one's ever going to hear what he has to say. But that's Isaiah's approach. That's exactly what he says. Now, it's noteworthy not only because it's a, a little bit of a, of a hard, direct approach, but it's noteworthy because the people are assembling. The people are worshiping God. They're going to the, make the sacrifices that the law commands that they make. They're, they're not, they're, they, they've not completely forsaken, at least on the outer appearance their worship and their obedience and their surrender and service to God. If you were to just walk in and look at them, you would think that everything was in order. If you were to approach them and you were to kind of stand on the mountaintop overlooking down into their, their practice and their worship, you would say, ah, everything is the way that it should be. Everyone is doing what they're supposed to do. Everyone is following uh, the commands as Moses gave them. And they're following the practices and their procedures. And, uh, and they're doing all of these things. The problem is, is that they're just going through the motions. Notice verse 11 in chapter 1. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Isaiah speaking on behalf of God. Saith the Lord, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and of fat fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks and of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to treat my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbath, the, uh, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting, even the most solemn meeting of their year to God has become an abomination. Even though they're doing everything the way that he said that it should be done. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. They have a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. Now, mind you, they're not doing these things because they dreamed them up. They're doing them because it's what God told them to do. They're doing it how God told them to do it. But the problem is not their form of worship. The problem is their heart in worship. The problem is that they used to have a relationship with God, and now they're simply practicing a religion. Now they're going through the motions of uh, a spiritual life. But they are not walking with the God whom they worship. Now he offers and he challenges them and tells them 
uh, how to fix this. Notice in verse 16. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Now remember, what's he calling evil here? He's calling sacrifices and feasts and solemn holy assemblies evil. See, we read the word evil and automatically our mind goes to, they went out and did some horrible sinful thing. That's not his point. That's not what he's trying to address. That's not what he's trying to correct. What he's trying to address and correct is the heart with which they come to God and worship. Is the way that they address their spiritual life and their fellowship with God and their walk with God. And he's telling them that you're doing what I told you to do, but you're doing it in such a way that it sickens me. Fix it. And this is how. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil from your doings. In other words, do it for the right reasons because you love me, not because you're ordered to. From before mine eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. He's saying, now that I've got your attention, let's talk. Let me reason with you. Let me teach you. Let me explain to you. Let me show you what's wrong. Let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. He said, listen, you have taken that which was holy and you have desecrated it. And though you're doing everything in the right format, you're not giving me your heart. Fix it. How do I do that, pastor? Wash me. Make yourself clean. He says, cease to do evil. Stop doing it for the wrong reason. Love me. What God wants in worship from his people is not a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's an expression of love. Yeah. Now listen, you can't get away from the do's and the don'ts. Oh, pastor, that's legalistic. That's what, that's what people say. That's what the church says whenever God says something that they don't like. <laughs> we just throw out, it's, it's legalistic. I had someone question me about our method of baptism biblically a few weeks ago. Uh, and they just put their hand on their hip and looked at me and said, well, that's awful legalistic. I was like, well, I'm sorry, but it's Bible. Amen. And so, you know, it's just the way that, it, that some things uh, are just the way that they are. It's just what God says is the way that it is. And so when we look at it and he's saying here, listen, cease to do evil. And then he says, learn to do well. Notice that he didn't say learn to do good. He said learn to do well. In other words, do what you're doing well. So, Pastor, but it's all about religion, right and wrong, and the do's and don'ts, and religion's all about checklists. I, I get what you're saying, but you can't get it. Listen, my wife and I have been married for 33 years. I can promise you, after 33 years of marriage, that marriage has many do's and don'ts. But I don't follow the do's and the don'ts of our marriage relationship because I have to. I do it because I love her and it expresses love to her. And a spiritual relationship with God is similar. Does, does the Christian life have do's and don'ts? Sure it does. Well, that's legalistic. No, it's an expression of love. It's only legalistic if I'm going through the motions and practicing a religion. If I'm involved in a relationship with my God and I want to express my love to my God, then I have to, there are things that I will not do because in the doing of them, I am communicating to him, I don't love you that much. But in the doing of them, I'm saying, Lord, I love you. I say I love the words I love you to my wife multiple times a day. I don't think that she could ever look back in 33 years of marriage and say that she could remember a day where I never said to her, I love you. But I try to say I love you in a lot of other ways. Sometimes it might be making the bed. Sometimes it might be folding a load of laundry. Sometimes it might be uh, taking and putting gas in her car. Sometimes it might be stopping and picking something up at the store that we ran out of that I really don't care if we're out of it or not, but I know that she likes it. So I'll stop and run in and get an item. It's just little, small, tangible things that I can have a bad attitude and say, man, I hate that I got to stop and I've got to do this. Or I could think, no, if I do this, it'll express to her that I love her, that I'm thinking about her, that I care about her. That's the difference of what we're talking about here. And our approach to our relationship with God and our life for God. Listen, he's not saying stop doing sinful things. He stopped, learn to do well. 
His charge here is not that they're out abusing their, their uh, you know, being immoral and being, uh, being this and being that. He's saying you're taking that which I intended to be an expression of my love to you and giving you an opportunity to express your love back to me and you're corrupting it. And you've made that which was beautiful and good evil. Learn to do well. And what I would say this morning to us as God's people as we assemble here and we pray for God to bring revival to our hearts and to our souls and, and, and over the next few weeks that what are we saying that we're looking for, Pastor? We're looking to learn to do well. We're looking to not just assemble and go through the motions of worship and religion. We are looking to build a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is real and that is tangible and that is meaningful and that gives us fuel and gives us encouragement and gives us life to live. That's the life that God wants to give us. He said, I've come to give you life and that you might have it more abundantly. He wants us to have an abundant life. Learn to do well. And then he tells us how to do it. Come to me. Come now. Let us reason together. Learn. He says, seek understanding. And what happens when we come and we learn and we seek understanding, we find restoration. If I want God to restore my soul, then I must come to him and seek understanding. And say, Pastor, that means I just need to come and learn. Well, I may need to learn, but I need to seek understanding. It's one thing to learn things and facts and figures. It's another to understand. And God gives understanding. In essence, God is seeking to renew or revive his people as he approaches them in this fashion. He's trying to grab them and to get their attention and to point them back to himself. Leonard Ravenhill said of, uh, of, of, on this subject, he said, The gospel is not an old, old story freshly told. It is a fire in the spirit fed by the flame of immortal love. And woe unto us if, through our own negligence, to stir up the gift of God which is within us, that fire burns low. Is the fire of God's love and relationship burning low within our hearts this morning? Is our motive for being here to express love to God or to get from God? Did we come to go through the motions? Did we come out of habit? Did we come because it's expected and we didn't want 15 people calling us this afternoon saying, hey, where were you? We missed you this morning uh, or, or whatever uh, what the, the reason would be that we hold back. Or are we here because we sincerely want to express our love to God and to be a blessing to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to encourage and to acknowledge and to admonish and to worship together as God has commanded? Revival. Someone asked me last week, this newer to the church, I appreciated the question, what exactly is this revival meeting that you're talking about? I appreciated the question. It made me think about it. It made me think about something that we typically just take for granted. Noah Webster, in his 1828 dictionary, defined revival this way. Three main parts of the definition here. First of all, he said it's to recall, return, or the recovery to life from death or apparent death. I thought that was interesting. Apparent death. Now I guess back probably when he wrote that dictionary in the early 1800s, it, was, uh, it wasn't unheard of for someone to be thought dead and to be being prepared to be buried and all of a sudden to sit up in the casket because they came back too. They weren't really gone. And so uh, apparent death. Hey, there are, there are some uh, every Sunday that I look out and at some certain points during the message, I wonder if you're still with us. I mean, I know intellectually you're not with me. You've checked out, you know, pretty much when I open my Bible. But, uh, but, you know, sometimes I wonder if we don't need to just have the ambulance on standby every service to carry out the corpses that didn't make it and survive through the service. What I'm saying this morning is uh, that there is the appearance of death sometimes when death doesn't exist. Second part of the definition is similar. It says to recall, return, or the recovery from a state of neglect, oblivion, obscurity, or depression. I wonder this morning how many of us need to be recovered from a state of spiritual neglect. I wonder this morning how many of us need to be recovered from a state of spiritual oblivion. 
when we look and consider, and all I'm saying this morning is, listen, God spoke strongly to this people that he loved here. I'm not trying to be unkind or mean in any way this morning. I'm just trying to share and communicate what God's communicating to the children of Judah and Israel here as he lays out. He wants to revive their heart. We, I, as a pastor, scheduled a revival meeting on the calendar in just a couple of weeks. What am I doing this morning? I'm trying to lay some groundwork of preparation to stir our hearts and our minds and our thinking to begin to seek God that he might meet with us in an unusual, supernatural way. We don't need three extra church services next week. We need to meet with God. Amen. We need God to speak to our hearts. The third part of the definition is this. It is renewed and more, a renewed and more active attention to our relationship with God and spiritual concerns. What is a revival, Pastor? It is trying to get those that are spiritually dead to be awoken. To those that are spiritually adrift and neglecting their walk with God to refocus on that walk and to redevelop it. To those who, uh, to those who, are, uh, who are not paying attention to their relationship with God and are distracted by the things of this world. To get our attention and our focus back on the single most important relationship of our lives, our relationship with Christ. Again, Ravenhill says the only reason that we don't have revival is because we are content or willing to live without it. There used to be a time when people would come to God's house and say, we're not leaving God until you meet with us. I, sorry, I think it was Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s that, uh, that once went to his pulpit and, uh, and, and would not preach. And he went back to his study and the congregation stayed there for hours. And the people would go back and knock on his office door and say, are you coming to deliver the message? And he said, I haven't gotten the message from God yet. And several hours later, he emerged from his study and walked into his pulpit to preach the message. And the people were still there. Because they were not content and they could not imagine going through another week without hearing something from God. The only reason that we don't have revival is because we're willing to live without it. Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5 give us a prophecy of the last days. Chapter 1, he's dealing with their current state. In chapter 2, he's telling them what will be and how it will be. And as he gives us this prophecy of the last days, he shares what the response of God's people should be to God's rebuke of our worship and our heart and our attitude in it. If you look here, he speaks of this temple. It's interesting. I was reading in, uh, in Kings and Chronicles this week about Solomon's life and, <coughs> and the building of the temple. And I never really realized this before. I guess I just never caught my attention. I'm, I'm, you know, you've got the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and we're all, if you know the Bible, you're aware of that. Did you realize this morning that it, the temple was originally built, when Solomon first built the temple, he built it on the exact plot of land that David offered sacrifices at the end of his life? When David went and bought the threshing floor to stop the plague, if I understand the way that Second Chronicles recorded it, that's the site where Solomon builds the temple. Where God met with his people, where God was offered sacrifice to stop uh, and to set the relationship back in order. And so in these first five verses he comes and it says again, the word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days. That the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountain and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it and many people shall go and say, come ye. What's my response supposed to be to God coming to me and saying, uh, and just stop and think about this. And again, I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just telling you what he told you, your, your animals, your pets, your livestock know their master better than you know your God. Whenever God comes to us and says, you're sinful. When God comes to me and says, you're an evildoer. But I'm, I'm, but I'm preaching. I'm, I'm serving your people. I'm serving you. God, what do you mean? I'm an, no, you're an evildoer. You see what I'm saying this morning? He's not saying that we're off in some gross sin. He's saying there's a problem with the way that we approach our relationship with God. 
He says, you're, you're a corrupter of that which is uh, those which have forsaken God. You're provoking the anger of God in your life. Now, what's my response supposed to be to that? Chapter 2, verse number 3. Come ye, and let us go up into the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. First thing that I want to point out this morning is that if I would have the reviving of God in my heart and my life, if I would have my spiritual reset button set, the first thing is that I must come into God's presence. You want revival this morning? Pastor, I want revival. How do I get it? Come, to God's, come into the presence of God. Come into the presence of the Lord. So, Pastor... What if he won't have me? Oh, he'll have you. He comes to seek and save that which was lost. He says we can come boldly before his throne of grace. Understand this morning that if I would have revival, I first of all must go to God. He is at home. Don't, don't stop and let that soak in for a minute. Buddha's not at home this morning. If, if you, you know, the, the Eastern religions that worship their ancestors, their ancestors are not at home. And I'm not trying to, you know, bad mouth or, or bash. I'm just trying to make a point this morning. God is home. He's there. He's waiting for you. He's longing for us. He wants us to come. He wants our attention. He wants us to be with him. He welcomes us. I was out in the neighborhood a couple weeks ago and I, a particular sign caught my eye, <clears throat> which was a little unusual because it was just a typical standard kind of uh, Hobby Lobby type sign that just, you know, you, you put it up and it's a big kind of long narrow plank and on one side it'll say something like harvest and on the other side it'll say welcome so you can use it the rest of the year. And, uh, and we've got one in the corner of, of our porch and uh, but I saw one the other day that was actually honest. Because it didn't say welcome. It said welcome-ish. It said welcome in big bold letters and then in parentheses at the bottom it said ish. Now I have, I have successfully managed to avoid Hobby Lobby for the last couple of months. Uh, men, if you need some help trying to figure out how to do that, don't ask me because I'd have no, it's just a stroke of luck. Uh, because she has been on a weekly basis. Not, not really that often, but regularly. Uh, but it said, welcome-ish. And then in parentheses, even smaller letters under that, it said, it depends on who you are. <laughs> I thought, that's good. I like that. That's honest. <laughs> Somebody knocked on the door the other day, and it was, and my, my grandson was there, and he went, and he's not quite three, and he's peeking through the blinds. So they now, now they know I'm home. Not only are both cars in the driveway... And, and they've knocked on the door, but there are these two little blue eyes and blonde hair staring up through the little slat in the blind that he's got separated, looking up at him. Uh, and they're there to try to sell me something that I don't want. And they're very persistent. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that you really can't get rid of them sometimes unless you're just kind of ugly to them. Now, I try not to be harsh in my language, but... After I have kindly declined and they keep talking or they try to put something in my hand, I reach a point where I just turn around and go back in the house and leave them standing there talking to themselves. Why? Because they're not welcome. They're, they're in a no soliciting zone trying to solicit me something that I don't want. And I'm trying not to be rude. I'm trying to be kind. I'm trying to say, listen, I'm not interested in what you've got. I'm broke. You don't understand. I know I need a new roof, but you don't understand that I can't afford one. I had one stop by the other day, and it was a lady this time. It's harder to be mean to ladies. And so uh, it was a lady this time. And so I was at Jackson standing there right beside me. And so I'm like, i got to be a good example of my grandson. And it's a lady. I, I really can't be mean to a lady. And she's trying to convince me that she can get somebody to come on my roof and talk my insurance company into paying for my roof, like when there hasn't been a storm all summer, right? So, you know, my patience is wearing pretty thin. And finally, uh, she says, who's your insurance agent? And I said, State Farm. And she said, oh, they don't like to pay. Yeah, well, they like to collect. 
And she finally got the point and she kindly went away. You know, God is always happy to see us. I don't ever have to go to God's presence and wonder if he's in a good mood. I don't ever have to go to God's presence and say, are you willing to see me? I don't ever have to come to God and say, do you have time for me? I never come to God and God says, you're not important to me. I never come to God and God would never look at me and say, I can't afford what you're asking. God says, you're not welcome-ish. You're welcome. Come on in. That's God. Why don't we have revival? Because we're not willing to come into his presence. He's longing for our presence. We must go to him. Not only that, but we must expect for God to receive us. Do, you really, do we really come to the Lord and expect to receive? We talked about this some last week as far as in relation to church services. But did you come this morning expecting to hear something from God? Listen, if you came to hear from the pastor this morning, you, 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 you made a bad bargain. Because the pastor's not worth hearing. I'm not trying to bash myself. I'm just telling you, if you came this morning to Victory Baptist Church to hear from a man, you wasted your time. But if you came to hear from the Word of God, and if you came to hear from the God of the Word, so Pastor, are you saying that you're God? No, I'm saying that I'm communicating to you the message that God has given as Isaiah communicated the message that God had given him. I'm not giving you this morning what I dreamed up. I'm giving you what God has given. And what I'm saying this morning is that I must expect when I come to God that he will receive me and that he's ready for me. Sometimes you'll pop in on somebody or somebody will pop in on you and, uh, and it's not that you're not happy to see them, but you're not ready for them. Maybe you don't have anything to offer them. The house is a mess. They didn't give you any warning. You don't have time to do the flight of the bumblebee and bounce around all over the house running into things, picking up real quick. You're not ready. God's always ready. He's always ready to forgive. He's always ready to love. He's always ready to heal. He's always ready to hear. He's always ready to be God. Come into his presence this morning. Say, Pastor, I need reviving. My spiritual life is, is in decline and I've been distracted. And, uh, I, you know, I would say that spiritually, my spiritual life is, is in obscurity. My spiritual life is depressing. My spiritual life is in oblivion. It's really non-existent. It's just the grace of God and a miracle that I'm even in a church service uh, at all uh, because things are so, uh, so desperate in my life. Uh, and some would say, Pastor, my spiritual life is, it, it's been somewhat okay. But it, I, honestly, if, I, if I'm honest with the Lord this morning, I have to say, I have been neglecting my relationship with him and my time with him and, and how I express my love to him. I've taken God for granted this morning, but I want to renew. I want revival. I want God to be real to me and to speak to my heart and to stir my heart up. Then what do I do? Come into his presence and expect for him to receive you. <coughs> There's just something about some people that when you come into their presence, it lifts you up. There are others that I won't go there. <laughs> but I've shared before a pastor that I worked for once and I get so frustrated about some things sometimes and I go to his office and I'm just ready to like, this isn't going to go well. We're going to have it out. I'm going to try to be careful how I word this and uh, be respectful, but I've got some real issues. And I would be so mad when I walked in there and I wasn't in the room for 30 seconds and, and I was just like, I can't be mad at this man anymore. He just was that kind of a guy. He just had that kind of personality. He had that, that, that kind of a walk with the Lord. He just, you just couldn't stay mad at the guy. And typically, whenever we get that way, usually it's selfish and self-serving and, and, and it's uh, petty on our part anyway. But his presence just melted that away because he was always very gracious and very kind. And Don't get me wrong. He didn't walk on water. He had his moments. But he was a godly man that loved his people. Do I come expecting from God? Notice what he says next in verse number three again. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us. 
Not only must we come into God's presence, but we must come to God for instruction. Do we come this morning just to sing a few songs and offer worship and try to be encouraged, or do we come asking God to instruct us? A couple of things about this before we move on to our final point this morning. First, I would say this, we must come to him in humility. If I don't come with humility, I'm not going to get much. You can't teach someone that already knows everything. You can't teach someone that's not willing to hear. You can't teach someone. And you, you, how do you, how do you, man, pastor, how, listen, I, I'm going to help you for a minute here. You have a conversation with someone out in the lobby and they have to one up everything that you say or cut you off and tell you how they've done it better. They're probably not getting much from being here because they already got it all figured out. And the way that we are with one another tends to be the way that we are with God. We don't see it. We're blind to it. The person that has that problem, I'm just telling you that what I just said went clean over their head and they'll never, the light will never come on unless they humble themselves and say, God, show me what my need is to where they would look inwardly and God would look inwardly and say, no, you need to learn. You've got something to learn still. Come to God with humility. I, listen, I, I don't have it all figured out. But you're the pastor. Exactly. I'm not God. I remember one time, the first time I think I went to Nicaragua, my wife went with me and I'm sitting there with a missionary that's, that's trying to get this college up and running and I'm there to teach for a week. And he's got a real problem with a couple of the pastors that are down in Matagalpa that are, uh, that are established works. And, and they're just not liking him or the, the group that started the college or there, I forget what the, even the conflict was. And it was over one of the specific kids. And so he went down and he set a meeting with a pastor and he went into the office and I was actually with him, but I didn't go into the meeting. It wasn't any of my business. I wasn't there to try to intervene on that. I was just, uh, he's a friend, invited us down and we were there to teach. And, uh, and, and he went in and, and the meeting didn't go well, quite honestly. But he came back and we were driving back up the mountain and, and we're talking and he said, yeah, he said, I, I told him, I said, he said, and there's the problem is, is that the guy just won't listen to anything because he wants his way or no way and he's got all the answers. And he said, I, and I, I tried and I said, but I told him, I said, and the, and the man had been a pastor at that point for 20 years himself. And he said, I told him, I said, I learned very early on as a pastor that I don't have it all figured out. And he just told him, brother, he said, you don't have it all figured out as much as you think you do. I mean, he, he told him straight. Kindly, but directly as he could. And that particular meeting didn't go well. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do. But I'm just telling you this morning that if I don't come to God humbly, I'm not going to learn much. If I don't come to my Sunday school class, to my church service, to my discipleship class. If I don't come uh, to Faith Bible Institute tomorrow night, if I'm enrolled humbly, I won't learn. Am I willing? Say, but Pastor, I've been saved longer than you. I'm more educated than you. I've got this much more experience than you. And I've got good for you. That's great. Not knocking it. And you're probably right. But on the off chance that just maybe God shared something with the pastor that could speak to your heart, let your guard down for a minute and open your heart to God. Amen. Pastor, you're just, you're just a pastor. Yeah, I understand. Don't open your heart to me. That's fine. Open your heart to the Lord. Get what God has for you. You want revival this morning? You want God to do something special in your life this morning? Come to him with humility. I would say this, secondly, about coming to him for instruction, I must come hungry. Heart, with a heart that's open for instruction. I was thinking about this, and then this morning I was reviewing, and it, it really just hit me from this standpoint. Because all the kids are going back to school, or gone back to school, and all the college kids are getting ramped up. And I'm thinking about this point, and being open to instruction. I'm thinking about 
the, the way the kids go to school and they go through school, and I'm thinking about, I was never that great of a student. I didn't particularly like being there. Uh, I, I kind of did minimal to get by, and, and uh, you know, I'm not proud of that. And I have a long list of things in my life that I kind of use as, as an excuse as to why I was the way I was. But bottom line is I'm responsible for me, and I just wasn't that good of a student. I showed up. I was there. I wasn't always there, but I was always there. You know. <laughs> and if I sat close to the window, I was gone more than I was there. And so I, you know, I'm there. You know, and that's the way some people go through educational process. You can go to the schools around town. You can go to the colleges around the country, and what you'll find, if you look at any group of young people that are going through and learning, you're going to have some of them that they're there only because they have to be. And they're going to do the absolute minimum that they have to do to get by. You have others that are there and they want to learn all the information, but they never really learn how to process that information and do anything with it. You have others that want to soak up like a sponge everything that they can get. Not only do they want to learn all the facts, but they want to learn all of the, all of the, the, the principles of how to utilize those facts and to grow. And There's all kinds of in-betweens between those, those extremes. And that's the same way we come to church. That's the same way we come to the throne of God in our private life. I'm saying this morning that if, if, you, if you came to stare out the window, you're out of luck. If you came to hang out with your friends, you probably got what you came for. If you, if you came hungry, so pastor, well, I, I came, but I really didn't get much. Were you hungry? Were you hungry? If I go someplace to eat <coughs> and I'm not hungry, even if it's a favorite place, I'm, I'm not going to get much out of it. I'm not going to take much. And there are some places that I know if we're going to go, we're going hungry. We're going to make sure we go there hungry because we want to enjoy it. Do we come to God hungry? You know, our problem in our Christian life is, is that we just simply don't come to God with a hunger for Him. We don't come hungry for the things of God anymore. We come to God for instruction. We must come into His presence. We must come for instruction. And then lastly, again in verse number 3. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us His ways. We will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law of the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I must come to God with a commitment to do. Teach us his ways. Go out and walk in his paths. What's he saying here? He's saying, listen, come to my presence. Sit at my feet and learn. And be committed to do what I share. To practice what I give you. To experience me to the fullest. And get up and go out and walk in my ways. I must come with a commitment to do. Faith without works is dead. Am I this morning, can I truthfully say, God, I am committed to walk in your ways? Do I come every Sunday with an attitude and the spirit of, God, I'm hungry for you and I'm longing to hear from you and I am committed to do whatever you put in my heart to do before the Bible is ever opened at the beginning of the message? See, if I come this morning and my attitude is, God, I'm here and I'm going to worship. And if what, what, what you speak to me about is something that I'm willing to do, then I'll move. I'm never going to have revival. But when I come with a heart and a spirit that is, God, I'm coming into your presence. I'm hungry for you. Teach me. I want to learn all that I can. And whatever you teach me, I will do. Before the book is ever opened, before instruction is ever given, then God will revive my spirit. I need to commit to walk in his ways. And then secondly, I need to commit to eliminate and elevate. Commit to eliminate and elevate. What do you mean, pastor? I mean, I need to eliminate every hindrance to my walk with God. So you're going to give us a big long list? No, I'm not. The typical list of sins you already know. 
if those things are going to get in our way, then we're never going to have revival anyway. What we really need to eliminate are the chapter one things. The things that hinder our worship from being received by God. The breakdown of relationship that we experience with God. What do I need to eliminate, Pastor? Anything that hinders my relationship with my Savior. You understand what I'm saying this morning? That might mean a relationship. That might mean a job. That might mean, uh, that might mean uh, activities in my life. So you saying all those things in our life are bad? No, not at all. All those things are a part of everyone's life. And God intended it to be that way. But are the things that I've let in my life, are the people that I've led in my life helping me come into the presence of God and grow with God and walk with God? Are they hindering my relationship with God? And if it's hindering my relationship with God, I must eliminate it if I want revival. And I want to elevate. I want to elevate anything that helps me in my walk with God. I want to elevate relationships that help me in my walk with God. I want to elevate uh, outreach opportunities that, that, that help me in my walk with God. Say, Pastor, then that mean that, that everything that you do has to always be building you? No, some things in ministry are going to be very draining. But they're also serving Him and expressing love to Him. And at the end of those times, there has to be a time of refreshing and renewal and restoration. Come to Him. The good thing about coming to the presence of God is it's not a one-time offer. It's not a one-time takes care of everything. It's a continual process. I, I like to see my children and grandchildren on a regular basis like you do. I like to see my wife every day, most of the day. There are times she has to go do what she has to do. I have to go do what I have to do and that's fine. But when all that's done, we're coming home together. Why? Because we want to be together. Do we want to be with God? Do we want to walk with Him? Listen, coming to the presence of God to be revived is not something that should happen once a year or once every six months or once a quarter on the church calendar. It should be our daily walk with the Lord. Amen. Walk in His light. Notice verse number 5 and we'll close this morning. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Walk in His light. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And we don't have time to go way down this road this morning other than to say that whenever you're in darkness and the light comes on, hidden dangers are exposed. Why do I need the word of God? Why do I need the presence of God? Why do I need to walk in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because when I walk in the light, I can see the danger. I've, I've got relationships in my life or I'm on a path of life or I've got other things going on in my life that are hindering my walk with God and hurting my walk with God. If I can't see it, if it's not lit, let God light it. Let the Word of God illuminate it. Let the Word of God expose the danger. When I walk in the light of God, the hidden dangers are exposed. When I walk in the light of God, His greatness is revealed. You ever get around somebody and you think, man, that person's nice. I like to be with them. I like spending time with them. I like being encouraged by them. And, and, but you only really know them casually from a distance. You don't really know them that well. And then you get to know them very well. And one of two things happens. Either they disappoint you because they weren't what you imagined they were. Or they exceed what your expectations were. And you look up to them for a lifetime. The more that God reveals himself, the more we will appreciate his greatness. But if I'm not willing to let him shed light on who he is and what he is and his holiness and his righteousness and his perfection, I'll never stand in awe of him. What we need this morning more than anything is an awe of God. Amen. He is an awesome God. Amen. Do we stand in awe of him? Do we worship him because it's the thing to do culturally and familiarly? Is it what we just go through life and it's what we expect of ourselves and it's where we come whenever we're down or whenever we feel like we need to be lifted up or when we've got a need that we can't figure out how it's going to get met and we need some advice or some assistance or some help in some way or do we come and say God I'm here because I stand in awe of you regardless of what I'm going on down here. I stand in awe of my God. Whenever God lights the way I can stand and understand his will for my life. 
Some of us are vacillating around and we have no concept of what the will of God is for our life. And the simple reason is, is because we have no real relationship and we're walking in darkness and we have no light of the word of God shining upon us. And it's amazing how when the light comes on, we see the danger, we're drawn to God, we stand in awe of him and all of a sudden his will is made very abundantly clear to us about what he would have us to do. Walk in his light. It reveals much. Ravenhill also said, it's kind of, I think he was paraphrasing himself to what he said earlier. As long as we are content to live without revival, we will. Revival's not going to come to your spirit because there's a revival meeting on the calendar. You can come to every service and you can leave at the end of Wednesday night and leave just the same way that you came on that Sunday morning. That's up to you. God, I'm telling you, wants to do something special in your heart. How can you say that so confidently, Pastor? Because he wants to do that in every person's heart. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young. It doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't matter how wealthy or how, how poor. It doesn't matter uh, what our backgrounds are. It doesn't matter whether we came up, uh, you know, with, with luxury or if we, and with every opportunity afforded to us or we came up destitute of opportunity. It doesn't matter. God is there and he loves and he wants to make a difference in every heart and every life. And when I get to the point where I stop making excuses for my sin and for my lack of a relationship with God and realize that my lack of relationship with God has nothing to do with God's reaching out to me and everything to do with me being willing to come humbly into his presence, then God can begin to revive my spirit. Are we hungry for him? Do we long for him? Do we want him? What do I do, Pastor? Realize that I'm perhaps this morning just going through the motions and that that at a point, becomes nauseating to God. And he gives me a solution. He says, make yourself clean. Let me wash away your sin. Come into my presence. Learn of my ways. And go out and walk in them. And when you do, and I shed light abroad upon you, then you will be revived. And your life will have meaning and purpose. And I will be glorified. And we're here, my friends, this morning to glorify him. Amen. But we only can if we allow himself, allow him to glorify himself through us. Would you be revived this morning?